Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscriptstudy biblicalworld. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. We have a new series here. We have a few overlapping series on this podcast. So, um, you know, like the uh, significant te- texts from the ancient world and the geography of Judges. And this is part one of a series called Egypt and the Bible. And um, we have uh, our very own Mark Jansen, who is an Egyptologist, along with Chris McKinney in this episode, talking about that. And this will be part one of a multi-part series on Exodus, sorry, Egypt and the Bible. And we hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to Ed for producing the show. And if you would like to support what we're doing here, you can go to onscript.study forward slash donate and find out how to do that. Or give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Or if you're out in the field doing archaeology while you listen or around when you're listening to this, um, you could leave the website wrapped up in a piece of paper in a clay jar, bury it on the site for future generations to dig up. I think that would be all too fitting. All right, enjoy this episode. Welcome back, OnScript Biblical World listeners. We are happy to embark on a uh, a new series, if you will, or at least a, a, a selection of topics that we have dealing with ancient Egypt and the Bible. Uh, today, I am your host, Chris McKinney, and I am joined by my good friend and often um, conference roommate um, and co-host of OnScript Biblical World, our resident Egyptologist, Mark Jansen. Welcome, Mark. How's it going? Good, man. How are you? Doing well. Doing well. I'm excited about uh, these topics, Egypt and the Bible. Yeah, you ready to talk Will Brenner and Shattering Tablets? <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe a little more serious. Charlton Heston and uh, who else? Uh, uh, Steven Spielberg even tried his hand at this. By yeah, the way, that's Prince true. of that Egypt. Was a, that was a bad one. Uh, I, I think Prince of Egypt is pr- the, the soundtrack anyway. It's it's underrated. What was the new one with Christian Bale? New oh, one, I say that. that probably was like eight terrible. years old. That was the one I was thinking of when I said terrible. That was absolutely terrible. And I don't just mean that because they got stuff incorrect and, you know, non-biblical. Uh, I'll never forget. In fact, I watched this in Jerusalem with a, with a good friend of mine. We we came in late and watched it um, in, in Cinema City, which is just inside Jerusalem. It actually has Noah's Ark on top of the mall that it's in. <laughs> and we went in there and at the very end, Christian Bale um, who is playing Moses, he comes to his wife, Zipporah, and Zipporah tells him, I'm not going to give up my religion. And, and Moses, uh, Christian Bill, as Moses says, good, you're going to need it. (laughs) It's just this moment (laughs) of like, what, what is happening? What is happening right now? It's just, uh, anyway, it, it, it started out well with the CGI uh, and it just went some weird places. Uh, I think, I think 10 commandments still holds up. Uh, pretty well, comparatively for sure. It, it's like people can't help themselves. They got to embellish. They got to add. They got to do all this extra stuff. Yeah. Well, we're not going to do um, 
you know, the archaeology of Egypt through cinema. Uh, but instead, what we're going to do today in the first part of these topics that we've picked out about ancient Egypt and the Bible is to look at the story of Joseph, which is in the book of Genesis. It's the last 13 chapters, Genesis 37 through uh, 50, which uh, for my money and for many other scholars' um, perspectives is among the most beautiful sections in the entire Bible. It hangs together really well, like a novel. In fact, it's often been called a novella um, that has a central theme. You can trace the theme, and the theme is showing up at the end of the of the in the, in the, in the last chapter. That you know, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. When Joseph talks to his brothers, and it's because of that, and because it is its own kind of distinct unit, its textual unit within the Book of Genesis, it's obviously been part of lots of different discussions about you know, what its place is in the textual critical record, how old is it, um, is it related to uh, a much later time period in the redactional history of of, uh, the Hebrew Bible, Uh, is it really early, and uh, because of Egypt's um, prominent role, and because much of these Egyptian names and elements that we have there it's been a, a good place to compare some of these things with. And so um, Mark has the idea of, of go- going through this piece by piece. Uh, and I'm going to let him uh, talk a little bit about his general ideas. And we'll set the stage a little bit for how Joseph is introduced. And then, you know, what's some, just, what's, what are some, you know, pieces that can be connected with ancient Egypt in this story? Yeah, so I think the the novella thing that you brought up is really important because I think it's had this sort of unfortunate tendency to then lead to people either drawing the explicit conclusion that it's fiction or leading their readers to think that they're implying that it's fiction and or that that because it might be a late final composition it must also be fiction which we can touch on that later too. But I think the the goal for me with this particular episode, like part one or whatever of our Egypt in the Bible, is to establish the sort of plausibility and find the sort of authentically Egyptian markers in the story. Not We're going to date it a little bit, but in that sense, like some of that is like New Kingdom and things like that. But I'm not as interested in some of the text critical things as I am the markers of Egyptian culture. And I think that for a lot of listeners, I think will probably be somewhat new information. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds really interesting. Um, and I'm excited to to hear what you have to say. I would just say as a kind of a bigger methodological principle, um, we ultimately 3000 maybe plus or minus, uh, years after the fact can't know, um, or will be able to ever to determine, um, sans uh, Doc Brown pulling up in a DeLorean, if these things happened exactly the way the Bible purports them to happen. Uh, and in fact, we know that they don't happen in the sense of a cinematic version of a documentary, which itself is selective. We're told information that is specifically thematic and specifically associated with this larger story. But what we can do as historians, as Mark, as an Egyptologist, uh, as myself, as someone who's interested in the archaeology and the geographical background of the Bible, is to compare 
um, the cultural background that you see in the language of, of, of a text like Genesis 37 through 50 to different time periods in history. And again, that doesn't prove that it happened exactly the way that the text says, but it does show what time period that uh, you should be looking at as far as a reflection of what we have in the text. And therefore, as a second you know, kind of follow-up to that, might point to a point in the compositional history of these stories. And so as we, as we turn to this uh, topic of Joseph, what I would just really quickly you know, set the stage as to uh, what's happening in the larger book of Genesis, Joseph doesn't get included as a patriarch. I, I, I think it's kind of funny because he, he kind of gets shafted. I mean, he's got 13 chapters devoted to him, and it doesn't say Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. It says Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, you know, Isaac's kind of overstated. I mean, he was the chosen one, but he has, what, two chapters? Um, not a whole lot going on. Considering and, all you know, his birth and childhood, we don't get much about the adult. It's Jacob, really. Yeah, and it's really I kind of just... Part of that has to be because Joseph's not the one who's the progenitor of the tribes, right? Yes, that, that's, where I'm, that's where I'm going with that. That's where I'm going. Yeah, it's, it's, it's because he's one of 12, right? He, but he's the, he's the main character of these one of 12 uh, sons. Although in the story, what makes it so fascinating is that there are other potential rivals. And the, kind of the subtext of this story is Jacob's sons who are rivals to one another. Uh, Reuben and Simeon and Levi, and especially Judah, these are all characters. And we also have others mentioned. Benjamin, of course, plays a big role. These are all characters that you know, the way that they act in these chapters will be reflected in what happens to them in Genesis 49, which is what uh, Jacob's final blessing in. And it, of course, is meant to be a preview of everything you'll read throughout the, the rest of the text. And so as we start this, I'm just going to give uh, a very brief geographical kind of historical background, um, or I should say textual background to what's happening. Jacob and his family have moved to Hebron after the death of Rachel, after being driven out from Shechem, thanks to the um, the handiwork of Simeon and Levi and their ruse in killing all those poor Shechemites. Well, they weren't, they weren't so good either. Um, after they had circum been circumcised, um, they, they make their way all the way to Shechem. And there, Jacob um, has, of course, all his sons. Joseph develops into this uh, kind of a brat, uh, younger, younger brother, uh, who is better than everyone, his brother's. Um, his brothers eventually take the, the flock from Hebron to Shechem, back to their ancestral land, right in the center of the hills. And it's a very important detail because this is going to be where Joseph's body is eventually going to be brought back. Why is it brought back there? Because it's one of two places that the patriarchs actually have territorial um, rights to because they purchased a field, a plot of ground for money. And it's there at Shechem uh, that we have just this amazing uh, kind of, it seems like a throwaway detail, where Joseph encounters some random dude, just calls him the man who's at Shechem. And it's only because of this uh, man, and many people have seen like divine origins for this character, that Joseph knows where to 
uh, Joseph Wirt knows where to go. And he, and he goes further, some 20, you know, 15 miles or so north of there to the Doton Valley, uh, which is just south of the Jezreel Valley in um, the, uh, the northern part of the, the hill country of Ephraim, uh, or excuse me, Manasseh. Of course, Manasseh is not born yet, Joseph's father. But it's there that the story begins to unfold. And as far as this geographical background that we have, we have the patriarchs, and there's, and in this case, the sons of Israel going up and down what we call the central ridge route of the hills of Judah and the hills of Ephraim and the hills of Manasseh. And they're getting towards the northern end of that, and they're going to be coming into contact with this great trade route um, that connects the hills of Transjordan with the great trunk route or the uh, the international road that would connect Egypt with Mesopotamia as well as the Arabian Peninsula. And that's the backdrop to how Joseph is uh, is sold into, into slavery because he's connected. So it, it all fits. I mean, in terms of the geography, whether or not you're seeing this as a uh, a historical, reliable text, every detail happened the way it is, the geography fits until today. And you can see exactly, we know exactly where Dotan is, we know where Shechem is, we know how these routes would have worked. Um, and so on that on that point, there's a lot of um, connections that can be drawn out from that. And so with that said, I'll pass it over to Mark, and he'll give us some details about uh, about what's actually going on in terms of Semites in Egypt, slavery, uh, how would this have looked in the ancient Egyptian world? Yeah, so the geography point is well noted. I mean, I think readers might read the story of where like, oh, we're going to kill Joseph, and then no, we can't kill him. Let's fake his death and sell him. And, and they think like they're just like lucky that this caravan stumbles across them in the middle of the desert or something. But no, it was been pretty easy to premeditate the exchange because it is such a well-traveled area and like the egyptians have been going through there for a long time uh who knows how long really in terms of what kind of strong presence this is of course prior to their fuller presence in the new kingdom in the region but this is not a uh you know middle of the desert and they got lucky that some caravan sort of stumbled onto them so even that part is very very believable really um, but let's let's talk Semites first, and then we'll look at his price of slavery, and then maybe come back to you. So, uh, at first glance, I think the first thing that's really obvious is when you look at the archaeological record and the Egyptian textual record that Semites have been coming to Egypt in times of famine for centuries prior to Joseph. Like this was nothing new. The Delta of Egypt was always sort of an attractive desperate getaway location when the rains weren't flowing or, you know, when the, when there was nothing going agriculturally for them in Syria, Palestine. And you often will hear it said that the Egyptians are too hostile to foreigners to allow this. And that's what we call the topos, right? The topos of the bad foreigner agents of chaos, Pharaoh, he's got to keep order. And so he must, you know, always smite them. And we see this all over Egyptian temples and there's sort of the sort of state official version of this but the real world tells us otherwise too that they do interact with foreigners they intermarry them the shirdan warriors are like pharaoh's elite bodyguards later they're foreigners right they it's kind of like everyone sort of knows better right and so there are a host of semites in the delta from at least the first intermediate period on um in the 12th dynasty, when you get to the Middle Kingdom, you have Semites making inroads into the Delta. You have 
uh, King Mayorkare was counseled by his advisors to take firmer uh, like security measures to secure the border, I kid you not, right, against Asiatics. And then the 12th Dynasty founder, Amenemhat, builds a series of forts to restrict their movement, not necessarily to keep them out forever, but just to do a better job of figuring out who's there and when for how long, right? And they'll they could be seasonal. They could be something where they settle down more. Of course, most famously there would be like the Hyksos, Semitic rulers who, of course, take over the northern part of Egypt uh, prior to the new kingdom. So this is nothing new. Uh, and they could come in also as prisoners or people sold into captivity, just like Joseph, or as gifts from rulers to Pharaoh. Um, they find themselves in Egypt in a variety of ways, and none of this is even uh, remotely hard to believe or only a late period thing like this happens frequently, I mean, basically constantly. Um, and so there's just growing numbers of them in that region, and they could serve as all sorts of uh, different workers. And we'll touch on that one, I think, a little bit later, too. But they could be staff in the temples. Even one case, they're dancers at the temple. Which is kind of a weird one. Like, here's our Semite dancers. <laughs> like, what? They would be ways to pay off debt. So if, like, you bought one and you owed an Egyptian guy something, you just go ahead and sell him the guy you just bought. Right. And then a lot of this is uncomfortable to the modern mind, but it's just sort of par for the course in the ancient world. There's a, a great Papyrus, Papyrus Brooklyn, I'm sure you're aware of, but Papyrus Brooklyn 35.1446. How's that for? There you go. Like, come on. No one will have to look great. Right Just Papyrus Brooklyn. Anyway, there's a guy in there who says he owns 77 such people, and 48 of them were Asiatics, right? Of like these little like workers on his estate, which we tend to call slaves, but usually the word is also servant. I mean, it's hair splitting at some point, I think. But and they could get all the way down to like Thebes and into southern Egypt too. You know, 500 miles from southern Canaan. So it's not just the Delta. But obviously, the Delta, we see it as much as anywhere. Yeah, go ahead. That's really interesting. Um, and that's a question I've always had. I mean, I love Egyptology. Um, and one of, the, one of the real benefits, I think, to having this discussion is I know everyone essentially loves to get into the, the mystic world of, of, of Egyptology, walking into the tomb, seeing the pyramids and all of the epic background that... Um, is the world of Egyptology, but in terms of hanging our hat on different things and knowing how it all functions, um, it can be it can be a, a bit daunting as, as Egyptian history is just so huge and so complex. And so it's one of the I think the reasons why we're um, excited about about doing this together with a, with a real Egyptologist and someone who knows this this background. And so one of the questions I would have um, that you just touched on is how many of these Canaanites, Semites, Asiatics, those are all just different terms used by scholars at different times to describe the same Semitic peoples. That's another one. Um, how far down would they be inv- uh, going? And actually, related to that, isn't this interesting also with the Wadi El Hole inscriptions, which have the um, proto Sinaitic text? I believe they're just near. Luxor, which is the modern name for Thebes, um, and a clear indication of a Semitic people fairly early on. Uh, same type of text that you see at Serbit al Khadam in in southern Sinai. Um, that it's the same. It's the same text. So you see this penetrated 
not just into um, into Lower Egypt. And I did want to say that you know we need to come out with you know the slogan "Make Goshen Great Again." Um, yes. <laughs> um, to 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 keep the to keep you know out the the Canaanites. Um, the other thing I think you said that was really fascinating. I hadn't thought about that is a, an interesting parallel is you mentioned the sea peoples, the Sheridan serving as the personal bodyguard. Was, was it, was it Ramses or, or mm-hmm. it's a whole Ram- bunch of them, but yeah, Ramses is kind of the famous one who's Ramsey's got the, them all over the place. The, yeah. the third or the second? Both. Both. Okay. So what, what, what was really fascinating is that's essentially what you have also with David because David has foreign mercenaries, uh, Ittai the Gittite and Beniah the Cherethite, uh, who are both um, different Philistines, sea peoples, uh, that are serving in his uh, as his personal bodyguard. I mean, these are the ones in the case of in the case of Ittai the Gittite when Jesus, oh, Jesus, uh, when David uh, leaves after Absalom is carrying out his coup that they are told by David, you're not even an Israelite. You can, you don't have to stay with us. And he says, we will. And it talks about Ittai the Gittite and his foreign forces from, from Gath of the Philistines. Um, so it, that's, that's an interesting one I hadn't, I hadn't thought about before that you can see a, a real parallel there. Um, back to your point, uh, we have all of these different examples of Canaanites, Semites. Um, I think there's some pretty famous ones as well. Um, some pretty famous pictures of them somewhere. Yeah, Benny Hassan, you got all kinds of stuff. Um, I do want to mention, you brought it up, so I should clarify too, the Asiatics, Canaanites, Semites, those are all the same term. The reason you'll hear me use Asiatic a lot is that's the Egyptian word they use a lot to describe these people, A'amu, in the hieroglyphs, and it just basically means Western Asians, like Syria-Palestinian origin. And so they say that a lot, so, so Egyptologists tend to use that phrase quite a bit. Um, so the point we're trying to make here is there's sort of always a foreign presence in Egypt, despite how much in the royal ideology they talk about how they're going to lay the smack down on foreigners and foreigners are bad. They're interacting with them all the time. Plenty of foreigners must have found it perfectly fine in life in Egypt, or they wouldn't have kept going further south into Egypt. Though we're more worried about the Delta in this particular series, we do have, like you said, various pieces of evidence that they're they're further south, too. Or we could go much later, at least in, for what I believe the setting of Joseph is, Jeremiah gets all the way to Elephantine, right? I mean, that's like as far south into Egypt as you can get. So I think we, we just have to be careful when we, when we hear things or we read things about the biblical presentation of foreigners in Egypt, and specifically when it comes to Joseph, his promotion— that we, when you see people saying, well, they would, they would never go for this. Mm, that's just not true. But they, they, they do interact with foreigners and sometimes they do promote them. Yeah. I, I, I think what you say is really, really interesting as we think about even just human culture and how, how that works across different settings. I mean, you've described Egypt, but you could describe this in other uh, yeah, that sort of xenophobia, but they don't actually implement it. Yeah. Um, one question I have for you, uh, one question and then kind of a related comment. It seems to me that if I'm remembering my Egyptology right, that Set or Seth is often identified with Baal. Is that correct? Yeah, there's a lot of work on like, what what does that, is Baal Safan, you know, the north in Egypt, is that, is that, 
Seth, like in the Delta. Seth is strongly related to the Delta as well. And so are the Ramesides. This is kind of a part two or three even topic perhaps, but Seti is named after Seth. And that's a family that rules the 19th dynasty that comes from the Delta. Right. And, right. So and, there are connections there. And it's just interesting. I mean, even if we think about Baal's function as a storm god, and you have many of them in this area, in the, uh, in the, in the, uh, in the, in the Delta and in, in lower Egypt that you would have Semites kind of in this vicinity. And if I'm remembering correctly, Seth is also seen as like the protector, but sometimes as the bringer of, of calamity and chaos. So it's, it's just, and we, we can't necessarily point our finger. Yeah. Very debated at how much of a syncretism is there. It's really tricky. But, but it's interesting. It's interesting for sure to see. One, it's just that that's the area where it happens. It's also where most of the Canaanites and Asiatics are going to settle. Right. So it's sort of a broad fit, but nothing too specific. Which is also where you get the only rain that in any fair amounts, correct, in, in, in all of Egypt is going to be in the Delta. And I think that's the next point I would like you to, to bring out is, why is the Nile and Egypt itself, which is based on the Nile, why is it that it's a place to um, to go to as opposed to Canaan or other places? What is it? And I know it's an easy answer, but I just want our audience to think about this a bit more because it's central to Egyptian history, but also central to Egypt and the Bible. What is it? And that- to the Joseph narrative. It's Egypt is supposed to have food in reserve because the Nile provides the cushiest gig for creating a surplus of food in the ancient world generally it floods reliably you can collect the flood waters with basin irrigation rotate your crops and when the waters recede they leave behind rich alluvial soil which the egyptians called kemet the black land which that's their name for their own land is kemet right we get egypt out of the greek but that's neither here nor there at the moment but like the whole place is named after this phenomenon in their world and so if you lived in Canaan and you had a famine and you're like, where's the closest place I can go where they're probably going to have food? Hopefully they'll treat me okay. I'm getting mixed stories on that, right? Like maybe you've heard through the grapevine, so to speak. But chances are you're going to think your best bet in the ad disadvantageous situation that it's not raining enough in Canaan, your best bet is almost certainly Egypt. And it's a doable journey along, again, the King's Road, really, right there. And it's it's a sort of a no-brainer. And now this does bring to mind another really important topic, because most of what I talked about earlier was sort of like the idea of people coming in. Uh, well, I guess we should rewind for a second and also note they could come into Egypt either peacefully in those kind of situations, i.e. migrate, either seasonally or permanently, or be captives, you know, or tribute, like, sold into it like joseph so we have all these different ways that they get to egypt but the point is there's a lot of them in almost every time period has this phenomena certainly the biblical timeline does and they can be doing a variety of things in egypt they're not all slaves and they're not all just even the ones who are slaves or servants would fulfill a variety of roles not just maybe buildings and farming you know what i mean yeah, I think that's I think that's really interesting. And the other point I would just draw out further about the climate 
of Egypt in comparison with Canaan that, that has a special correspondence with both the Joseph story and with Abram and Sarah going down in Genesis 12, it's the implication that if, if in the, especially in the Joseph story, if there's famine in Egypt, in Egypt, how much worse is it going to be? How's it? How much worse is it going to be in Hebron or Beersheba? I mean, it's it's. If we were to look at it like scientifically, that means it didn't rain in the rainforest, right? Like that, that's what this means. So, like, it's not rained anywhere. And and you know, if we want to look at it culturally too, this idea that the foreigner is the bad agent of chaos is part of Pharaoh upholding order. Maat in Egyptian, part of Maat is also the river flooding reliably. And so when we get to the dream, right, he has the dream and you know, he's all worked up about the cows and Joseph translates it. It's like, well, yeah, seven years of no reliable flooding would be a huge disaster. And of course, the whole point is the dreams are going to allow them to prepare for this. Um, and so this is all very much at home in the almost entirely agrarian ancient Near East. Right? Like when you understand that, you see, OK, I can see why all this is a big deal. Uh, and you mentioned the Beni Hassan tomb, which we should come back to for a second. That's a very famous painting. It's beautiful. It shows people from all over the place, including Asiatics, bringing in tribute, like some of their finest goods are on display. We have Nubians from further south into Africa as well. There's people from Cyprus or Crete, um, too. So like, it's a beautiful example of the globalization of the particular era of that of that tomb which was the late bronze age but this this so this is kind of the zenith of all of this travel and trade and people coming into egypt whereas joseph would be before that but you would still have that same picture maybe in less grand form happening in joseph's day too yeah um speaking of joseph's day um i know that one of the things that we wanted to talk about is how uh, prices change, um, and thinking about and thinking about um, the slave price, because it's it's really interesting, you know, um, that almost in several places in the Bible, when people get sold into slavery, um, when some betrayal is made, uh, we have references to the amount. Uh, so I could think of, you know, Judas uh, betraying Jesus, and we have the exact amount of how much he he he. he sold jesus for <laughs> shekels of silver how greedy were they really here's yeah. the price <laughs> right but but there's i mean there's intertextual connections that go from this story all the way to uh when we get to the new testament um but what's interesting is that and what you're gonna talk about in a minute is is the how the slave price works in genesis in its own context uh but then you can have even in the in the story of passion week as judas is um, selling Jesus for this set amount of gold or uh, silver, excuse me, it also fits its own cultural context. And so, what was the the, the price of a slave uh, in ancient Egypt, and how might that tell us a bit about the authenticity or an authentic detail, let's say, of uh, the Joseph story? Yeah. So let's just cautiously word it this way: stuff like the the price of Joseph is where we're talking what he's sold for. Help us, I think, feel like the original source, even if it's edited later and whatever, redacted into final form, it has got really good authenticity to Egypt at that um, particular time period. So, and so like, let's, let's back up a little bit. So we're talking 12th, 13th dynasties or the Middle Kingdom or the Hyksos dynasties uh, for Joseph being in Egypt. 
So after they haggle a little bit, I'm sure, you of course know how many shekels do they sell him for in Genesis 37, 28? 20. 20 shekels. Don't you love that detail? Like you said, we get all these details about this. We don't know who the Pharaoh is. The Bible won't tell us who the Pharaoh of the Exodus is or Joseph's. We don't know, like when Jesus turns the water into wine, we don't know who's getting married. But like, I love the details we get versus the ones we don't sometimes. At any rate, Joseph is sold for 20 shekels, shekels um, which is about the right price up through about the 18th century. Um, so it's about the same for Hammurabi in the 1700s. Um, and in Mari, it's roughly the same as well in sort of, sort of like old Babylonian documents, if you want to extend out to the broader ancient Near East. Um, they're within 15 to 30 with, I think, I think Kitchen had a, a comment about this where it averaged out to be like 22 shekels in the examples that he did in, uh, on the reliability of the old Testament where he covered this. So you can, you can check that out if you want more before this, the point, the real takeaway here, the, the money line is before this period, they were cheaper. After that, it got steadily more expensive, almost like any other industries, you know, with, with inflation, um so like third dynasty of ur again using mesopotamia here it was 10 shekels right but of course they're going to be some variants too but then they rise quite a bit so like by the time you get to moses and the exodus it's 30 you know that 400 years later ish and then in the first millennium in assyria slaves fetched 50 to 60 where they keep us, Mesopotamians actually have a little bit more data on us on this for us, I think, than the Egyptians do. And then during the exile, they soar to the Persian Empire to 90 to 120. So the question would then be if we want to kind of look at it philosophically, if the whole story is fictitious or made up much later, let's say even in the exile, how do they know to set the price of the shekel at a very authentic 20 shekels for Joseph in the, you know, a thousand years earlier or more? So it's a pretty interesting piece of authenticity, I would argue. Yeah, I, I think I think that's right. Um, and I I'm with you that these types of questions are of interest. We can't be too dogmatic about them. It's just a it's a more of like add on uh, piece of evidence to this. Um, one, it's, a, it's a fun little thing to think about, right? Like we want. I think I spend a lot of time telling my students to ask the right questions of archaeology and of ancient history too. Like we very rarely we get like really great definitive proof. We get big patterns, we get sweeping patterns, we get trends, populations, you know what I mean? Like we can check on like surveys and all these kinds of things, but stuff like the Merneptostela and the Tel Dan inscription and these kind of things are pretty rare and they still get debated. So if, if we're looking for Joseph was here in a tomb, we're not going to get it. Well, uh, it depends on, it depends on which movie you watch. Yeah, <laughs> or patterns of evidence. Uh, at any rate, with, with with the shekels, it's it's just it's circumstantial. I think I've said this on here before, but it's a circumstance. How do they know twenty shekels is the right price at that time? That requires an explanation. So it's circumstantial evidence. The explanation that best fits why they get the shekel price right is a lot of them had spent a lot of time in Egypt and had authentic memory of these details. Yeah. And I mean, even thinking about how you were to calculate this uh, and, and Kitchen does this in, in, in the work that Mark cited there, but think about, um, I mean, the, the Ishmaelites and the Midianites uh, who themselves are part of the family of Abraham in part of this larger story, they're not doing it uh, 
for their, uh, just because they want to, you know, sell them for the same price, they're going to sell them for a higher price once it gets into Egypt. So what that price is, we're, we're not told, but we do know that in terms of Joseph, he is sold to a, um, a really important interior member, uh, perhaps of Pharaoh's cabinet, this, this guy Potiphar. And he's not just a, a run-of-the-mill slave. He essentially becomes the number two person for Potiphar. And so it's, it's whatever they sold him for, they didn't sell him for enough because he becomes a very valuable member of of, of this household until things go poorly for him. Um, but it's what, what I'm saying here is if we think even about the slave price, it's hard to know how we're to even set it. Are we, t- are we talking about when someone is sold to like a dealer and then sold to the end product? Uh, we don't, we don't have the whole, uh, you have to contextualize each reference, yes. which I'm not going to pretend I took the time to do. I'm sure that study's out there. I don't even know if kitchen did it with, with that. But at some point, we have a record that says slave was sold to someone for X amount. Did they then get 10 more in their final destination, perhaps? But either way, the, the, the point would still hold because it's just the big trend from, like in mostly anything else, right? Price, and then it goes higher. And if they were making the story up much later, it's weird that they got the price basically right. Though they could have been like, oh, it must have been cheaper back then. They could have guessed it, I guess. But it just—I think it's a fun one to think about, as um, you know, at least it's at least some some math and economics in there, and not just personal names and titles. I, I would agree, and and one of the funny things is you often see uh, critical scholars look at this and say, "Well, there's a lot of really old details here. Uh, I wonder how they got there." <laughs> you know, they they say like, uh, well, "These are really archaizing uh, details for a text that was written in the Persian." Yeah, that period. word kills me sometimes. I'm not gonna. I'm like, you mean you mean they might have been there? That's what you're saying, but you can't admit it. You mean they're archaic details, not archaicizing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, in, in any case, th- these are going to continue to be debated. I just want to make our our audience aware of some of these things. Um, and here's another one. Well, let's talk now about dreams in Egypt and throughout the ancient Near East. And obviously, dreams are a big part of the Joseph story. It occurs in three main places with uh, Joseph, with his brothers, which is part of the reason why they hate him. Uh, even his father thinks he's a getting a bit, you know, too big for his for his. Uh, I want to say britches, but maybe it's his his uh, his robe, his, his robe of many colors. Um, and then, of course, we have uh, the two dreams that differ in their details for the for the ba- the chief baker and the and the chief cupbearer, and of course, the, culminating in uh, Pharaoh's two dreams on the same night. So, Mark, tell us about um, what this would have meant in ancient Egypt and how this might help us better understand the story. Yeah, dreams were significant, just like they were in the rest of the ancient world. There's no doubt about this. I mean, we we sort of have like, tech, to use an anachronistic term, the textbook version of what you're supposed to do with a dream coming out of these. There's like 10 pages of, uh, I don't know, prognostications based on if this happens, then do that. If you see this, then it means that type of things and so this is the chester Beatty third papyrus um where we see a lot of the, where there's like the 10 pages of it and these these would again be a little later they're the reign of ramses the third if memory serves but there's 
that kind of thing is so ingrained in the culture. Like, I don't think we have to worry about it like changing much over the centuries. At least not the big concept. And of course, the point would be that the dreamer sees things that the deity is revealing, right? Omens and portents and signs, good or bad. And then they have to figure out the proper interpretation and plan accordingly. So like the butler and the baker in Joseph's story, one of their problems is they don't have the manual to help them. They realize, oh, this has to be one of those God dreams, <laughs> to use a corny phrase that I've heard in other contexts. But they don't have the manual. And then so they have Joseph. And he's like, oh, here's what it means. Sorry, sort of. You know, like um, Pharaoh's scholars, of course, is wise men, as they're often translated, right? They have some of that. And they won't translate the dream, right? They won't interpret the dream. I've always wondered about this. Is it because they're like, uh, well, the book here says this would be bad. Like, I mean, I know the story unfolds. God is revealing it to Joseph. I'm not trying to take God's, you know, claim away from that part of the story. But it seems pretty easy to see that, you know, fat cows eaten by skinny cows is probably not the happiest occasion. And so I've always wondered if they're like, I'm not telling Pharaoh, you tell Pharaoh. No, I'm not telling Pharaoh. You know, and he's like, you bunch of cowards. Go get me somebody who can interpret the dream. And then he's like, oh, wait, there's a guy in prison. Yeah. I, I got a guy. I finally remembered. I finally remember. It's like, you know, it's it's such a, I, I agree with you. It, it, in some ways, the dream on its surface, it's not really that complicated uh, to understand understand what's being said there. And I think to your point, it's really interesting. If you go back and read Genesis 41, which is where this happens, Joseph not only interprets the dream, actually that's the shorter portion of the section. The longer portion is, okay, what now? Like, do what will you do with this information that I'm that I'm giving you? And I think that that combination of those two things is really an important detail because um when we talk about magicians, they're not just, you know, doing parlor tricks. The, although, although they do do those. Um, yeah. uh, Joseph but, does one. He pretends to use the the um, the cup for divination. Like he makes yeah. a little show of it. Like he doesn't need to do any of that. Yeah. Um, but but they, but they're advisors, right? They're advisors. Yeah, yeah. So this is a, another thing I was going to bring up that's really important, and we can get very specific on. So I'm really glad you did. Sorry to cut you off, but. Um, the Egyptian term that we usually call the sage or the wise man in Egypt, it's the Harry Tep best translated something like expert. And this is important because when Joseph can tell the Pharaoh what the dream means, and then Pharaoh's like, okay, now what would you do? Pharaoh expects him to also be smart enough to have the answer to what's next, the real world application. Cause he's not just a, you know, Miss Cleo, the astrologer, t- reading his palms, he's supposed to now be one of the more learned people and, and an expert because he could do this. Like, if you can do the dreams, then you are an expert. And now I want your expert advice on what to do. Even though we haven't seen Joseph in any kind of political role, what we have seen, and this gets us back to Potiphar, and I think is important too, is that he has been very competent at every task he was given. So he's purchased, and quickly he's put in charge of the household of this prominent Egyptian Potiphar. Uh, most of the time, like back to the Brooklyn Papyrus, you see them like putting the men to work as brewers and cooks. Women will make clothing. Um, 
and take care of kids. I mean, it's all kind of sounds sort of chauvinistic, but it's the simple logic that they're using there. Um, but the last role is really common in Middle Kingdom Egypt, which is one of our two potential settings, right? Either the Middle Kingdom or the Second Intermediate Period, depending on your date of the Exodus, basically. Um, this role that is very common is the hairy pair, which is head of the household. They could also become, if they're really good at it in a big enough household like Potiphar's, the hairy pair where the great head of the household. This is this is now Joseph second in command of an estate. And then he's going to get this, this idea of uh, becoming an expert with the hairy tep because of his ability to translate Pharaoh's dream and give him the right idea. And I don't know what official title he ends up with. People often call him the vizier because he's second in command in the scripture, which would probably be the right one. Um, But it's not that clear. But this idea that he would be one of the people with a ton of power because he's established himself as an expert with being able to interpret these dreams and provide the what-to-do plan is actually very Egyptian. It doesn't matter at all that he's a foreigner, which is the big hang-up a lot of people have, I think, on the Egyptologist side. That, and let's just be honest, when it comes to is any of this historical, you have the textual critical issues, which we've already sort of talked as much as we're going to about. And then we have, you know, once you get to the Exodus, especially the miraculous, right? Rejecting the idea of divine will being known through a dream, rejecting the plagues and parting the sea and all these kind of things. Um, But if you just try to keep it just at home in the ancient world, and in this case, just at home in Egypt, this is all very much in keeping with Egyptian practice. Even a foreigner having that rank is not unprecedented, which we can come back to. But Yeah, um, I would would just add a couple things here, and and I'd love to hear your comments on them. Um, In a recent rereading of this and and kind of even teaching it through in kind of a a smaller, you know, non, it was a non-formal setting, I was struck by you know, the, the, the references to the, the chief of the house of the guard or the captain of the guard for Potiphar. And it seems to also kind of swing back and indicate that this is also the place that the chief cupbearer and the chief baker are kept. And I just remember reading this as a kid or, or seeing it on a flannel graph or watching some cartoon. And it's like, you know, Pharaoh was really mad at like this you know, this baker who everybody loved their bagels or, you know, the guy that just, just, these are officials. Like these are, these are important people and to fall out of Pharaoh's favor, um, whether we're talking about the, the baker or the cupbearer or in this, we don't know if Potiphar falls out of his favor, but he's also an additional uh, person who's perhaps even involved with the keeping of these uh, political prisoners it was something bad that they did. We don't know exactly what it was, but we do have lots of examples of uh, coup attempts um, and other things that were found displeasing by various pharaohs. And it's written down. We even have court uh, archives of this information. And all of that doesn't tell us exactly what the cupbearer and the baker did. They were involved in some coup attempt together and one was worse than the other. Uh, We don't know. It's one reason they probably prefer foreign mercenary bodyguards a little bit later because the threats are from within. And if you keep the, the Sherdan warriors well-paid, fed, and happy, they're not interested in being pharaoh. But that crazy uncle might be. And they might be trying to get the cupbearer to put a little something in the wine, you know? Yeah, we don't, we don't get all those details, but it's, it's kind of fun to think about 
We do have some details that are really fascinating, though. So the Egyptians are, as my prof when I was getting my PhD put it, the inventors of bureaucracy. And we can either thank them or be mad at them for that. But they have hundreds and hundreds of official titles, overseers of everything you can think of. Overseer of beer, that's a fun one, which apparently was a big deal. He has a pretty nice tomb. Um, there's, you know, stuff that we don't know how to translate exactly. Like what do you call the, when it's literally the, the English would be chief over the seal. Okay. He's the seal bearer. Okay. But then in Genesis 41, isn't he robed in fine linen, given a gold collar and entrusted with the seal. And then given the second chariot, that's why people are like, maybe he's second in command. And the chariot should also give us pause as to the timing because the Hyksos are always said to have introduced it into Egypt. So that's, a potential clue there. Um, anyway, I, I don't want to get too much into that debate because I don't find it as important as the just the general Egyptian Egyptianisms in the text. But the, Joseph is treated like a big deal after this. Is the point? I, I would just add, um, and again, please comment on this. I'm sure you have much more you could say, but I'm just thinking of other really clear Egyptian things that are here is what happens to Joseph with uh, Potiphar's wife has so many parallels with uh, a, a very old Egyptian story, the tale of two brothers, um, where essentially the same thing happens to the younger brother. Uh, by the way, it's a fantastic story. If you haven't read it, go back and read it. I just found out, and you'll appreciate this, Mark. You know who cites this in his one of his most famous essays about myth? Mr., I should say, Professor J.R.R. Tolkien and on fairy stories. Really? He cites. Oh, man. What a mention. What he, he calls. Of course, the, he did. Yeah. And I, I, think, I, I think it was recently published, um, you know, around that time frame. So that was, I was really happy to read that. Uh, but it, it has a ton of uh, connections to what you read in the Joseph story, which in itself also has a ton of connections with what you read in Greek myth. I mean, this is a kind of a, a trope, you know, the woman scorned. Um, and yeah, then and women had those kind of rights in Egypt. I don't want to pretend I know enough about maybe what they are wearing in Mesopotamia to say it's the only place where they could or anything like that. But women's rights in Egypt did out, you know, surpass quite a few places and even more recent, like Victorian era, I would say women had more rights in Egypt. Right. So like her making this accusation is a thing she can do. They can initiate a divorce. They can become pr powerful priestesses. They can own some land depending on inheritance rights and siblings and lack of a brother and things like that. So, like, even that story, as awful as what she does is, in some places that wouldn't even have been possible, even though he's a lowly servant. She's, you know, in their minds, some of those places, also low on the totem pole. But in Egypt, the idea of a powerful uh, woman making this accusation would carry great weight, and we see that it does, of course, with Joseph's life, with the consequence there. Um, the other thing I think that's really interesting about the as we're kind of at the uh, like back to like Joseph's ascension is uh, this is a funny thing that kitchen points out too. We don't know exactly what he did because the Hebrew Bible doesn't really give us titles. It gives us his functions and Egyptian texts don't really give us the functions of all these titles. They just give us the titles. It's like oil and water here, but um, all the honors he's given, you know, it's quite the reversal. And I think it's interesting. We don't really hear about potiphar or his wife again and potiphar seemed to really like him believes his wife of course what's the guy supposed to do there right throws has him thrown in jail and then now he's like basically in charge 
You know, it's like one of those little funny what ifs to me. But he's off the stage. He's not a part of the story anymore because it's not the comprehensive story of Potiphar's life. It's the highlights of Joseph's. You know, and and I think thematically, from a literary perspective, there in reading it again, what's so interesting is again when we think about how this story is used and reused in later uh, narrative and later uh, biblical literature. Obviously, what you see in Daniel. Um, with Daniel and, you know, being essentially the Mesopotamian Babylonian Joseph and has that same type of, uh, of, of, of role. But I would even say in terms of the intertextuality you see in the Gospels, Joseph is brought out of two pits, which is essentially a way of coming, of dying and being raised up and exalted from you know, essentially a type of resurrection. He... Uh, f- almost dies with his brothers. He's brought out of a pit and he's saved and he's elevated to second status uh, for Potiphar. But then when he's in prison and he's finally remembered, it doesn't say, oh, they let him out of prison. It says he was brought out of the pit and he's elevated to the second in command of Egypt. So just because we have, let's call them potential, authentic, second, early to mid second millennium, new kingdom, middle kingdom, second intermediate period details. That doesn't mean that there is not a strong storytelling literary aspect that you should that you should see. And to me, that is really interesting. That aspect of him coming from basically coming back from the dead twice um, in this in this story to to reach that uh, to reach that that status. You have to forgive my totally out there reference in terms of the chronology, but biblically speaking, it, I think, works. Esther. I just taught my Old Testament survey on Esther this morning, and Esther is full of ironic reversals. That's the whole structure of the book is themed around the pivotal moment in chapter six, and everything else is ironic reversal, right? I mean, the most over-the-top one would be the stake that Haman wants to put Mordecai on, he ends up on. Right. Joseph is full of, I don't know if reversals is quite the right word, but there's a lot of ironic triumphs, right? He's sold into slavery. He's supposed to be a nothing and a nobody and they can forget about him. He's never going to be great. Forget it. Reversal definitely works with his brothers though. But then he's the head of Potiphar's house. Then he's unfairly thrown in prison and then he becomes the head of the Pharaoh's house, i.e. Egypt. Right. And then now here comes the ultimate ironic reversal where the brothers have to come back and they don't even realize it's him, so much time has passed. But it, the, the biblical authors love these sort of ironic reversals. Sometimes they're almost at the character's expense, like when Nathan's like, no, David, you are that man. You the man. You the man. You are that man. You know, and he confronts him with Bathsheba. But these are more happy ironic reversals in Esther and Joseph. And I think it's important that we can we recognize this, again, as a philosophical thing, but I think it trips up a lot of people like, we can appreciate the literature and the structural and thematic elements of a story without it being fiction or without that meaning or that it follows that it must have been made up. Right. It, I think what we have is the, the authors will selectively, you know, choose what to tell us and make it into a really beautiful piece of literature. But that doesn't necessarily mean it was pure fiction. But totally. it is selective, and I think we have to admit that much. Well, and then in getting back to the things we said earlier, our ability to to know uh, or ascertain or prove, which is a word I know we don't always like to use, is so limited. 
And so just to try and read these texts solely on the grounds of trying to prove or disprove their historicity is uh, really missing the point because this story is particularly Genesis 37 through 50 is among the best ancient literature period in the ancient world. Um, and it's absolutely beautiful the way we see the story being told. Um, and so we can get into the nuts and bolts of all this, but let's not forget that it's just such a, an epic story that has been so influential both on the way stories that are subsequent to it are are told and written down, but I would even say, um, even you know, as a as a a method or as a a a a, char- a path to to go down for some of Israel's greatest heroes, not uh, including Jesus. I mean, he does much the same thing. He's presented in much the same way. Um, the, the interesting thing I also wanted to point out, and then we should move on to a couple last things, is. It is interesting that the Esther, Daniel, uh, Joseph, um, each one of those have a lot of similar. The kind of the thread through all that is 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 imperial contexts with special Jewish uh, figures uh, rising to the occasion, and so um, that's just kind of an interesting thing to think about. This is the kind of story you tell in imperial context, and I would even say in the story of Passion Week. In fact, you have Jesus kind of doing the same thing before Pontius Pilate. You know, it's an imperial context once again. Um, it's interesting how many of these sort of um, Jewish figures in difficult situations fare better than their kings do, whether you're before the monarchy or after as well. Like, that's another thing I tell my students. Like, there aren't that many start-to-finish heroes in the Bible, and none of them really are the kings. Not if we consider David's moral failings, though his repentance, of course, is is, is put on a pedestal for sure. Um, and I know Josiah and Hezekiah are good pretty much from start to finish, too. But like Joshua, there's really no blemish at all. Daniel, there's no blemish at all. Even Moses has a blemish, right? But then you look at like Daniel, Esther, Joseph, and it's these terrible circumstances where they have to rely on Yahweh and they're able to, even though God's not even mentioned in Esther. But if we get back to the Joseph and the literature, the theme we already talked about, but it's definitely worth hammering home as a follow-up to what you just said, is that what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Regardless of all the other details, and I think he's historical, and I think it's more plausible than most that he could rise to that um, level, Joseph's theme is God turned the situation around. Yeah, definitely. Um, And and I think that that's the that's the real key to the story, and all parts of it work towards that end. The fascinating thing for you know the topics that we're looking at now is that even with all that, it still contains a lot of these details that uh, would have fit in an Egyptian cultural reality. And I think we'd like to look at two last things. One is going to be the 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 people names that we have um, among the Egyptians from the period. We could think of even. Potiphar, uh, the name given by Joseph after this. Um, I'll let you say it in the Egyptian way if you want. Uh, Asenet, I can say that one. Um, his wife. These are all clearly Egyptian names, uh, but also, and I want you to comment on all this. All over proof. the place. Yeah. Just I, like there's Egyptian terms in the Moses birth story. Yeah. And, and that, it's like, where do they get these if they never were there? Like, that's another one of those circumstantial things. Right. Um, and, and so I'd like you to, to comment if you have other things to say on that, but also his, his age, 
you know, his death age and why that itself is another interesting kind of mythical in the sense of it's part of Egyptian myth, not really, um, uh, not really Israelite myth because Israelite view of, of the age of someone is 120, you know, that's the, or if you do Moses's version, man's, uh, years are 70 or by, by reason of strength, 80, that's what we read in Psalm 90. And so if you could kind of comment on those two things, like the, the onomastics that we have, the people names, and then thinking about further, you know, what is meant by the fact that Joseph is 110 when he dies? What's what's going on there? Yeah, so I think he did a pretty good job with the names already. I don't know that it would be that easy to, like, break down just without being able to see them, right? Like, just verbally describing them. His wife is very Egyptian. Her father's name was, what, Potiphara? <laughs> like, you think he might be related to the guy he works for? Which would be interesting because that's another clue that Potiphar really loves Joseph. Yeah, that's true. Either marrying his sister or his daughter to him, depending on if he's meant to be anyway. You know, Although that would guy. make family reunions quite weird. Very awkward. Yeah. And then he throws him in jail. They made me careful with this one. But the names are very Egyptian um, for the most part. So to the to the age thing, you know, 110 is the it's look in an Egyptian sit, setting, it's not coincidental that that's the age that he just happens to live to. By contrast, Hebrew, the ideals, as you mentioned, uh, a different number. But in Egypt, the 110 year tradition goes back to the old kingdom and goes all the way to, you know, the Ptolemaic era after Alexander the Great. I mean, they, they value this for basically all of Pharaonic Egyptian history. Um, so this is very, very specifically very Egyptian. Um, and, and some of the burial stuff is kind of interesting too, is there you get this mix between the Egyptian and the Semitic, um, as we kind of talked about earlier too. Um, but he was embalmed. He was put in a coffin in Egypt, but with the hope that he would, of course, eventually be taken to Canaan. Right. Um, so, and all right, we could get into the burials of Semites in Egypt at the time, but there's a mix between sort of Semitic and more Egyptian style, but he's basically fairly Egyptianized at this point. Yeah. And, and it's interesting too, that I believe the word itself for the, the coffin that's used is the same thing that we have in terms of the, in terms of the Ark, the Ark of the, the Ark of the Covenant that we have showing up a little bit later, box. <laughs> the box and which I, you know, and, and it has certain parallels with the box that Moses has put into. So it, it has, it's doing double duty. It's it's telling us. Yeah, you don't want to make too much of that particular word. Right. The embalming is a more Egyptian marker than than the, the coffin, so to speak. Right, but it's it's like that. It's it's telling you that he is he's been buried. Like this is a very personal thing. I mean, Israelites buried their dead according to a certain number, certain amount of rights. We don't have the record of this. But we have archaeology. Yeah, we know it's vital. It's a vital part. They visited these tombs regularly, and it's even part of uh, of larger traditions associated with um, the preceding period. The Canaanites and, and, and the Israelites and Judahites they 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 had a, a particular burial tradition that was very different than the Egyptians. So the fact that he does this, and it's it's again as as Mark alluded to, it's 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 kind of a, a mix, uh, and yet there's also kind of a word not necessarily a word play, but a theme that's going to carry over from Genesis to Exodus on these types of objects being connected with the salvation in the Exodus uh, from Egypt. And so you might even say, 
as we think about this further, because Joseph's last words are, be sure to take me home. <laughs> be sure to bring me my bones with you. They're carrying a couple different arcs, if you will. Uh, and that was an, to, to bring this full circle. That was one of the worst parts of that silly movie about uh, Christian Bale. They're like carrying him around at the end and he's silent. If there's one thing we know about the biblical story, that Moses talked a lot after Mount Sinai. And in this movie, he's silent the whole time in the back of some like covered wagon. Um, so they, if only there was like a, like, you know, a 20 chapter narrative that could give you the details to make a fairly easy, accurate movie with cool, modern special effects. Uh, but I digress. Uh, you know, the other thing that's really striking to me, I guess I have sort of like two more things real quick and I'm saving the best for last here. The other thing that's striking to me about Joseph's um, request to be buried back at home is in a weird roundabout way, here's that irony again, that's Egyptian too. The Egyptians have a whole story, a very famous one, the story of Sinuhe, S-I-N-U-H-E, if you want to look it up, dear listener. Uh, and Sinuhe is an Egyptian on the run because he thinks the new pharaoh is going to be opposed to him, and he's ends up wrong about this, but he leaves. And he goes and he lives in Syria, Palestine, and some nomads take him in, and they're very nice to him, and he becomes one of their champions. There's even like a David and Goliath-style one-on-one fight with uh, a guy harassing this family that took him in, and he kills the guy. It's it's a really interesting sort of parallel to David and Goliath. Finally, he's like, ah, I'm still not happy. These people have treated him really well. And the basic theme of the story is there's no place like home. The only proper place for an Egyptian is Egypt, even if things are going swimmingly. It's a Hallmark movie. And so, yeah, and so, yeah, with, with lots of beheading. Uh, so Joseph wanting to go back home is, and it's, even though he's in Egypt, wanting to go home is kind of an Egyptian idea, too. That's pretty generic. I mean, probably all the cultures valued that, but I just think it's kind of a fun uh, reversal a little bit there, too. But now, are you ready for the best thing for last of year? Of course. My favorite piece of evidence or data let's call it data uh, about joseph and this foreigners being promoted thing is a tomb of a man named opper l so hyphen that and capitalize the l what kind of name is that chris uh it sounds semitic to me I mean, asiatic Most semitic canaanite semitic. one of the you, yep kind of like danielle yep or any number of l theophoric names which, of course, for Daniel is a shortened of Elohim, right? For Opera El, it's probably just generic L. Uh, at any rate, this guy's tomb was found at Saqqara. Now, Saqqara is where the stepped pyramid was built all the way back in the third dynasty, which is the precursor to the great pyramids, sort of like step one of the big steps, no pun intended, to becoming uh, to building great pyramids. And thus, it's an extraordinarily important site to the Egyptians. And this Semitic guy has a tomb there. Now, the whole place is huge. I mean, Saqqara is massive. Every year I go, there's something new open. In fact, our last trip, we went to all sorts of tombs I'd never seen. I was like, man, I've been coming here for 10 years, and this I still haven't seen all the stuff at this place, right? Or seven years, whatever it is, right? So, like, it's an amazing place. This guy's tomb was there, and in the tomb, Opera El tells us that he was the vizier, Chati in Egyptian, which is second in command to Pharaoh. Okay, so that means if you want to claim that Joseph is fiction, you can still do that for other reasons, I suppose. But don't tell me it's because the Egyptians would never promote a foreigner. Because on precedent, Aparel is a foreigner. It's probably a little after Joseph, but it still shows that this could happen. 
Yeah, I think that's such an important detail. And I think you hit on uh, one, an example that is not like this is not Joseph that we're talking about, but it's yeah, definitely Joseph, not. Although people get that confused, it's Joseph-like or Joseph-adjacent, if you will, um, and it, it fits this. Uh, it fits this time period. But the other thing is, is that you also touched on the fact that you are an Egyptologist. You've been to Saqqara numerous times, and every time you go, there's new things being discovered. In other words, yes, there's not any direct archaeological evidence of what we have happening in the Exodus, we have a Joseph story, but we have a ton of indirect evidence. And there's almost certainly much more indirect evidence that will be discovered that shows the same type of thing. Will there ever be direct evidence? Who knows? Uh, I, you know, who knows? But I think that uh, we can, we can certainly point to these different aspects that, that Mark has laid out and, and say, there's a certain plausible case to be made that the way that the story is, is, is written, the way that the story is told, has many authentic old details that fit around the same time frame that the story purports to portray, which, and again, it, it involves how do you understand even the numbers in Genesis itself? Like, how, how far do we back you know, to the fourth generation, you know, 400 years? Is that actually 400 years or less? So, but it, nevertheless, right. it's their still, world, not ours, is the key thing on all of this, really. Yeah, but, but even the dreams may seem ridiculous, but it's their world, not ours. That's true. That's true. So, I think you did a great job, and and I'm really excited about uh, this series and continuing to think about ancient Egypt and uh, and the Bible. Uh, next time, we're going to look at some other aspects of. Uh, the Exodus, and Egyptian background. Um, and so I'm really excited to, to continue this discussion. Yeah, the first bit of the book of Exodus, I think that's going to be a two-parter, probably parts two and three to cover the Exodus, really. So obviously we got even more Egypt stuff there. But again, just to kind of maybe to wrap up and summarize to, to listeners, the takeaway here is to understand and appreciate both the beauty of the structure and the themes in the literature, and recognize the plausibility of it when you understand the ancient context. And certain things like, you know, God miraculously giving Joseph the, you know, interpretation of a dream in a culture that believes in such things isn't the kind of thing archaeology can prove. But our understanding of ancient history and the cultures that make up ancient history helps us understand the story better, which I do think helps us see the plausibility. Factor and proof is just not worth even trying to use in most cases. I just as a term, to it's it's we we mean it too forensically in the modern world. Right. So thanks thanks for listening, everybody, and we will be back soon. Um, we have other you know we're, we're we're moving in and out of these different series. We have a, a series on judges. We have a series we're working through on uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and various other things we have coming down the pipe. So thank you for for listening and uh, just stay tuned. We have a lot of other interesting topics that we'll be discussing on On Script Biblical World. Until next time. You've been listening to On Script's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study slash donate. Until next time, keep digging. <laughs>